The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the fourth chapter. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He, lasted for, or he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came to Jesus and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And the tempter said to Jesus, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came down and waited upon him. The Gospel of the Lord. I invite you all to be seated. So there it was, sitting there, just tempting me and daring me, come and get me. And I, I walk by and I look at it and I see how good it looks. I see how much I, I realize when I see it, I've been craving it, but just didn't realize it. I look at it and it says, come on, Eric, just one isn't going to hurt you. And I look back at my old archemesis, the Oreo package, and I say, you're right, just one won't hurt me. Now that's true, one won't hurt me, but I always forget to multiply that by the 17 or 18 times that I walk by that package when there's one sitting in my house, or even more dangerous when at youth events we ask all the youth to bring snacks for the evenings. And they always bring Oreos, that, that old tempter. And now, that's not as glamorous as some of the things that might tempt us. But the problem with temptation isn't that it's obviously a bad idea. Because even though we're some, we sometimes will give in to things that we know are bad ideas. We'll, we'll do those things that we just know we shouldn't do. I smoked cigarettes for several years, and I knew I wasn't supposed to do that. Not just because my parents told me not to do it, but for a variety of health reasons. But, you know, those were tempting and hard to put down, too. And as we, as we read the scriptures today, you know, the, the one that we always think about with Jesus, this temptation in the wilderness, you know, Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And as we talked about in Sunday school this morning in the class downstairs, you know, it, it wasn't just the standard 40-day fast, and then you can eat at night. It was 40 days and 40 nights that Jesus abstained from food. And that's roughly 39 days, 14 hours, and 28 minutes longer than I think I could go. We, we see Jesus not only be tempted by, by the devil for food, turn these stones to bread, and not just bread, but enough bread to last you for a long time. You can do this, Jesus. Not only tempted by, by, the, by the thought of safety, and isn't safety tempting? 
You know, we live in a world right now where so many things seem so dangerous. We have the threat of nuclear war. We have the threat of terrorism. We have the threat of lots of people who we, who we either know or perceive to be against us. We have threats foreign and domestic. We have people who we are afraid of in our own lives. Every time we leave the house, we risk our lives when we get in the car behind the wheel especially the way all those other people on the road drive. I'm the only sane driver out there, right? You know, we, we're tempted by so many different things that, that tempt us to work hard to maintain safety, something that none of us are guaranteed. Jesus was also tempted with power. Look at all these things that, that are spread out before you all the kingdoms of the world, all the might of their armies, all the might of the, the things that these nations have to offer. I will give them, all, give them all to you if you just sit down and kneel down and worship me. You know, we're tempted by power too. Some of us, you know, by, by authority in jobs. Some of us by authority in our families. You know, some of us by those smaller ways that we get power you know, there's, there's no greater tyrant than an assistant manager at a fast food chain, right? People who don't normally always have power in other things that they do. But in this area of our lives, we're able to exert a little bit of influence. I remember when I was in high school, I was in ROTC. And, and ROTC is one of those organizations that's very stratified. And, and lots of Teenagers have power over each other. Never a good idea under the best of circumstances, especially when we can make each other do push-ups. You know, imagine how often that gets abused, right? It doesn't take a lot of power. It just takes a little bit of power. But something else that I find really interesting in today's readings, we go back to Genesis chapter 2. Now, God creates the man and gives one rule. Don't eat the fruit. You know, you can eat any fruit in the garden. That tree right there, don't eat that fruit. And so we skip ahead just a little ways after God says to the, that it's not good for the man to be alone. And in looking for a suitable partner, God creates all the animals, and Adam names them. And I imagine this scene where, where Adam says, well, it eats ants, so let's call it an anteater. But that doesn't look like a good partner for me. You know, we can call that one that one a, a badger, we can call that one a zebra, and goes through all of them, and none of them are, are suitable partners, so finally God causes a sleep to fall upon the man, and God plucks a rib out of Adam. You know, that's what's so beautiful about Genesis chapter 2, is we can see and understand the actions of God in this one. It's not the the J.J. Abrams kind of let there be light, magic, big, big, big special effects production that Genesis 1 is. But it's God reaching down and creating things with God's hands, forming us out of dust, forming us out of a rib. And Adam saying at last, this one is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. And what he means by that is at last, here is somebody who understands me from my own perspective, something that not even God can provide, a relationship of equals, a partnership that I can enjoy. And so Eve, the one who was created to be that partner for Adam, is out for her stroll in the garden or whatever it was she was doing out there and comes across the serpent. And this is always interesting to me because we don't have time in the garden. It doesn't say how long had passed. You know, it doesn't say 
you know, that it was days or months or years or millennia. It just says one day she was out and she met the serpent. You know, it could be that this was an encounter that she had had with the serpent on a regular basis. So you can eat the fruit today. You know, imagine how tempting that would be if day after day she has this encounter and eventually, finally, the serpent has, has tempted her with the right combination of things that play into her pride and her curiosity where finally she eats. But then again, I know about human nature being one, you know, and I, and I recognize that human beings don't tend to be quite that resilient. If the fruit was an Oreo, the serpent wouldn't even have to say anything to me. I would have walked over and said, oh, that looks really good. Let's try this one. But what the serpent says to her is really important. What the serpent says is, now, God told you you're going to die when you eat this fruit. You're not really going to die. God's afraid that you'll become God's equal and you'll become like God by knowing the difference between good and evil. You know, and, and the serpent says something else that I think is really telling. When you eat the fruit, not if you eat the fruit, but the fix is in. The serpent knows that at some point, whether it's during this first conversation or whether this is the thousandth con conversation, that woman is going to eat that fruit. It's a foregone conclusion because the serpent understands that, and this is one of those no-dust statements, the serpent understands that temptation is tempting. You know, it wouldn't be temptation if it wasn't something that really tempted us. And, and I don't even know that the temptation is fruit in particular. You know, the real temptation that the serpent gives to the woman isn't that, oh, look, that fruit appears to be good for food. It's that, you know, if you eat this fruit, God knows that you'll become like God by knowing the difference between good and evil. And you know what? If you want to tempt me, talk to me about how good I am, about how smart I am, about how talented I am. I'm a human being like everybody else. You know, don't attack my, my, my you know, knowledge of what God tells me to do. Attack me in my pride. That's where you can get to me. And that's tempting. You know, you're not really going to die. You don't believe that, do you? And what's God know about your life anyway? Has God ever been a human being? I don't think so. And God, if God doesn't really understand your experience, then how can God know what would be good for you? Don't you know what's good for you? I mean, you live your life every day, don't you? You live your life day in and day out, and you understand what's good for you. You understand from your firsthand experience those things that would be pleasing and those things that would be good. And wouldn't it be useful if you had just a little more knowledge to help you get through day to day? What does God know about what's good for you? Don't you know enough? And I don't know about y'all, but all of a sudden temptation sounds pretty tempting to me because I, I know what's good for me. I, I know those things that, that I have planned. And let's face it, most of the time, if I'm being really honest, I'm, I'm just a little bit upset that God has the nerve to be God and tell me what to do because, 
If you know me just a little bit, you know that the quickest way to get me to do something is to tell me not to do it. One rule, don't eat the fruit. For when you eat the fruit, God is afraid that you'll become like him. And if we really want to dig into what temptation is, don't we all just really want that authority over our lives? Because aren't we all just a little frustrated that God has the audacity to be God and tell us what to do? We may not think about that very often because that becomes an uncomfortable thought. It becomes an uncomfortable thought because it, it changes the way we understand our relationship to God a little bit, doesn't it? it? It changes the way we understand free will because we like to kid ourselves into thinking that, you know, if, if it's going to happen, then God will make it happen. Well, there's, there's truth in that. If God wants it to happen, it's going to happen. But, but we like to kid ourselves into thinking that sometimes the choices we make don't make any difference, do they? I mean, what's it going to matter if I do this one thing? And we, we think of all the things that God commands us to do. You know, Jesus commands us to love God with all our hearts, minds, and souls, and God commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. You know, if I, if I don't give money to this homeless person, there's organizations to take care of that. I don't have to do it. You know, if, if I don't take care of these people who, are, who, don't, who aren't able to feed themselves, you know, don't, don't we have government programs for that? You know, if, if I don't have time for my, for my friend or my family member who's hurting because I've got to go to work today, you know, someone else in my family will take care of them. And, you know, if we have people who are sick in our congregations, we can let the pastor do all the visits because that's what we pay him for. If we have people in our own lives who are hungering and thirsting for the gift of love that God gives to us to give, isn't it so easy to make excuses not to do it? Because we just trust that there's some system or some person or, or some organization who's going to do it for us. And then there's the other half of that, because what difference will it make anyway? You know, I, I can feed one person, but there's still how many thousands and millions of hungry people out there? My contribution isn't going to make a difference. But we also understand it from the flip side, don't we? We understand what it's like to be a poor college student and have somebody buy us lunch. May not make a difference to those other college students, but it sure did make a difference to me, right? Or, or someone who offers us a coat when we're sitting someplace and we're cold. You know, it, it may not make a difference to everyone else who's cold, but it sure does make a difference to me when all of a sudden I'm warm. And, and we see how seductive and tempting it is to, to give up on one of the things that is absolutely true about being someone who follows God, that God calls us to be bearers of God's kingdom in the world, to make a difference in the places where we live, to make a difference in the places we go, to make a difference in the lives of not everybody, but at least the people we meet. And, you know, I'm no different than anyone else. I, I know what it's like to be in a big hurry and be frustrated that they have to call for a price check on a bag of rice that somebody's getting in front of me and, and kind of make that loud, exasperated, uh, and when somebody looks at me, I cut my eyes at them because why are they not in a hurry like I am, 
or especially when I'm driving, which I do a lot of, and someone's going slower than me in the fast lane, you know, God help them because I have detailed their ancestry in great detail and it's not very flattering, you know, or any variety of ways in which God calls me to bear the light of God's kingdom to the world. And, and I choose in large ways and small ways not to do it because, you know, obviously someone else will do it or God understands how angry I get when someone's going slow in the fast lane, right? Temptation is tempting. And the reason it's tempting is because it hits us right at the point at which we normally use to justify our own behaviors. It hits us right at the point of our own pride. It tells us things about ourselves that we want to believe that we're smart enough to handle this on our own and we don't need anybody else, including God. And so the devil comes to Jesus after 40 days and 40 nights of temptation, of, of fasting, I mean, and offers him maybe the most tempting thing that there can be at that point. You know, you have it in your power to turn these stones to bread. Why don't you do that? You'll... You'll fill your belly and won't you feel good? You know, you have it in your power after spending 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness to command God's angels to take care of you. And don't you kind of deserve it? I mean, you are the son of God after a while, after all. And if you are the son of God, why don't you just take a little bit of advantage of that rather than suffering here? You know, look at the whole world. And I, and I think that one of the things probably that Jesus understood from early on was that God's call to ministry is a, God, is a call to sacrifice. It's, it's not a call to follow all of our wants and needs and desires. And so Jesus may not have known that the cross was the future, but Jesus certainly understood that learning to follow what God said, not what Jesus necessarily wanted, was the path that he was called to follow. But wouldn't it be nice to take a shortcut and just rule over the world now? I cannot imagine that that wouldn't be somewhat tempting. And, and that's the part where, where we identify most closely with Jesus, maybe, is in the sense that even Jesus, according to the scriptures, was tempted by this. And we see the humanity that Jesus struggles against and struggling to follow the will of God. But there's also something else that we can identify with in Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to go to the wilderness. This should be fun. Jesus was baptized, and the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And this, this causes us to struggle with something else that our culture teaches us. Our culture teaches us, if you believe in God, then everything is great. You know, if you believe in God, then not only should you not suffer, but we remember the TV preachers, like the one who, who was building the Crystal Cathedral back in the 80s, and he said, God commanded me to raise $10 million so I can build this church, and God will strike me dead if I don't raise it. And he raised $5 million, and he said, good news, God says that's enough. Or a Cruffalo dollar who flies around in a private jet because it's a sign of God's blessing. You know, or, or any number of people who who, you know, they, they go around on Facebook and, tw and Twitter, hashtag blessed, 
And it's all talking about the stuff that God gives them and the nice things that God gives them and the, and the easy times that God gives them. And, and obviously, if we follow God and we listen to God and we have faith, then God's going to make my life easy, right? Because isn't that what it means to be blessed? Isn't that what it means to be a person of God? Isn't this why we go to church and try to follow the Bible? Because doing this gives us the 10 easy steps to be able to lead a more productive and a more worthwhile and a more fulfilling life. But look at what Jesus promises to the disciples. Follow me and you will suffer for my name. You know, Jesus doesn't promise something that's easy. Jesus promises that by following the commandments of God, that by following the example of Jesus, that by following the the direction that Jesus sets out for us, the place that it leads us is to the cross. The place where it leads us is the place where we face our own darkness, our own doubt, our own brokenness, our own rebellion, our own fear, our own realization that there's really no safe place on this earth, and that's never promised anyway. Our own realization that there are things that we have done and there are things that we haven't done. There are things that we've said. There are things that we haven't said. There are things that we've done on purpose. There are things that we've done on accident, which hurt ourselves and hurt the people around us. And that oftentimes when we look at the places in our lives where we are in the darkest pits, it's because we've done things to put ourselves there. Because we followed our own desires and we followed our own wants and we followed our own wisdom. And that's the place where we find ourselves when we follow Jesus, looking straight into the mirror, seeing ourselves for the people that we just know that we are. And we think about what the serpent said. God promised that if you eat the fruit, you're going to die. Well, they didn't die, not right away. But I think they died a death. And, and the death wasn't the physical death where we stopped breathing that they expected. The death was that, and, and this, isn't, this, is, this is the gospel according to Eric, so take it for whatever it's worth. The, the death is that no longer were they able to see themselves through the eyes of how God saw them as people who were beloved as people who were holy because God is with them, as people who were clothed in the righteousness of God, as people who were given the gift of God's presence and they could see and walk and experience God in the garden together where God had put them. But now they saw themselves through their own eyes and they realized that they were naked. Now they saw them through, their, through the eyes of their own doubt and fear and worry and insecurity and vulnerability and they saw something completely different. What died was their ability to see themselves in the way that God tells us that we are through the waters of baptism. And we realize that, that this death may be a much more significant death than the one that we die when we stop breathing because this is the death that haunts our hearts and our souls and our consciences every day of our lives. This is the foot of the cross where we look in the mirror and we see our brokenness and our rebellion and we realize that there is nothing that we can do to change that because the problem is me. What we're invited to do during Lent is see this 
and see that this is the truth, and also hear the truth that God tells us, that through the waters of baptism, thank God we die to our own power and we are resurrected in the power of God. Through the waters of baptism, we die to our own will and we have the new opportunity to, to rise up in the will of God. Through the waters of baptism, we die to our rebellion, we die to our doubt, we die to our shame because through the waters of baptism and the death and resurrection of Jesus, we are given a new life in which God claims that space in which we are dead and raises us up to new life, to new hope, to be reborn and reformed and reshaped into people who once again have the spiritual imagination to be able to see ourselves as God has created us. Not perfect, but holy because God is there. As we leave this place, how is it that we look at this world that God has created, that God is continuing to create, that God is continuing to shape and mold and turn into the kingdom that is coming that we hope for, where all things will be made new. And hear the voice of God calling out to us that we are the bearers of God's kingdom, that we are called to shine light into the darkness and hope into the places that are hopeless and feed the people who are hungry and clothe the people who are naked and heal the people who are sick and preach new life to the people who feel like they are dead in their sin because they can't imagine how God might love someone like them. How can you do this in your daily life and be the bearer of the kingdom of God? Because that's the good news. This is what we're called to do. Not because of what's righteous within me, but because of what God sparks in me through the presence of God in the waters of baptism, through the nourishment of the meal of communion, through the saints of God who pray for me and support me, and who I pray for and support, and through the promise that wherever we go, God is there already. Live this truth. Don't believe the lie of your brokenness, but believe the truth of God's resurrection. Amen.